You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. I heard of this place. I thought I'd find myself here. Some things are best kept underground. An abandoned station for abandoned agents. Your calling card. So what have you got on graves? You burned me. And now you want my help. What did you expect, an apology? Oh, I know. You'll do whatever it takes to get the job done. Just like you. The difference is I won't compromise. Well, I don't have the luxury of seeing things as black and white. While you were away, the world changed. Not for me. You're suspicious of graves, or I wouldn't be here right now. So, what do you have? Nothing beyond the official biography. Orphan, working in an Argentinian diamond mine, learns engineering, makes a huge find in Iceland, and gives half of it to charity. Hmm. From nothing to everything in no time at all. And his demonstration this weekend? Probably just another publicity stunt. Now, tell me what you know about this Cuban clinic. Gene therapy. New identities courtesy of DNA transplants. So-called beauty parlor. We'd heard rumors of such a place. I didn't think it really existed. It doesn't anymore. Zhao got away. We left these behind. All from Gustav Graves is mine. I think it's a front for laundering African conflict diamonds. We need to tread carefully. Graves is politically connected. Lucky I'm on the outside then. Well, it seems you've become useful again. Maybe it's time you let me get on with my job. Welcome back to the 602 Club, Trek FM's local watering hole. And let me say, you may want to make sure you are plenty watered tonight. Ruby has got the drinks flowing. Um, I don't know. I don't know if uh, McAllen is not enough tonight. Um, we, we may need something else. Um, but before we even begin, uh, we are talking about uh, Die Another Day today. Uh, in this episode, and um, normally you know that uh, Christy would be with John and I, and she was not able to make it because, um, as many of you know, Christy has Crohn's disease, and tonight was a particularly tough night for her. Um, and I wanted to say this because um, I, I tweeted out today, so please do look for it at Matt Rushing Zero Two, a specific tweet about this. And um, she's actually raising money for a fundraiser to support uh, Crohn's disease research because right now there is no cure for this. 
And so I highly encourage you to find that tweet, follow the link, and uh, donate what you can to help because, um, yeah, this is something that there's no cure for right now. So uh, help out our friend Christy uh, and and those like her that are suffering with this and, and have to live with this every day. And let's find a cure for this. So uh, 602 Club listeners ask you to do that. Again, um, I tweeted that out at MattRushing02. You can find that link uh, and help support her and those like her. And so, um, yeah, we're very sorry to miss her and we'll miss her tonight. But um, we'll announce here... Uh, Christy's not going anywhere. John's not going anywhere because uh, we decided that we were going to cover the uh, Mission Impossible series, uh, the films that we haven't covered yet. Um, so we'll be starting with Mission Impossible 1 in December and kind of roll on into the next year with all the films that we've missed in that series. So that'll be a lot of fun. But here with the man, John Champion, Mr. Slow-Mo Gentleman himself, <laughs> to talk about Die Another Day. Yeah. Boy, what a conversation we're going to have. I know. I I feel like I would maybe want to die today instead of another day. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but um, yeah, it's, it is going to be interesting. So um, yeah. before we dive into, quick reminder, don't forget, you can find us all over the place. Trek FM shows are everywhere, but... Um, Hit us up on iTunes or Apple Podcasts with a star rating review. Help people find the show. It really does help uh, the show grow when you do that. And you can find all the shows we do here at Trek FM anywhere you get your podcasts. Um, and, of course, you can find us on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. Uh, we've got the listeners-only discussion group where you can talk to listeners from all over the world about the different Trek FM shows. Type Babel into the search field on Facebook. Facebook because it is on Facebook. It's called the Babel Conference. Or if you go to the website at trek.fm, you can find all of our shows there. Any of the show pages, click discussion. That will bring you in there as well. And then if you maybe you want to share your thoughts about Die Another Day because it is your favorite James Bond movie, that is a perfect place to go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that email will come to me and any hosts that are on that week. It's been a while we've gotten an email, and I would love to hear from somebody who this is your favorite Bond movie. Tell me why I'm wrong, So because I really want to know. Um, but, John, uh, as we continue Bond, really, for the last time until, I guess, the next Craig film finally comes out, whenever that's going to be, um, you know... This is interesting because this was the 40th anniversary of Bond. Mm -hmm. And so they're really trying to do something here. It's going to be also the 20th film of the franchise. And they want this one to be massive. But it was fascinating because watching the behind the scenes, this script is in flux for a very long time. And in fact, they don't even know what the name of the movie is going to be past when they even start filming like they they don't even announce it uh when they have the press conference with the actors that they've hired it's just fascinating to me like it it doesn't seem like they had kind of the the clearest idea of what they wanted this film to be other than the fact that they wanted it to be big and it and and try and find a way to celebrate you know 40 years of bond yeah it's really a shame because I, for better or for worse, you know, what, what we get here is the end of the classic James Bond series. And if they had planned it that way, they couldn't have planned it any better to say, okay, 40 years, 20 movies, and this is sort of the, 
the denouement of that that original style taken to its extreme. Um, and what we get with the Daniel Craig movies, um, almost by necessity, is a complete reboot. Um, and, and I really, I, I, I have to hand it to Eon Productions and to Michael Wilson and Barbara Broccoli and all involved that it was that bold of a move after 40 years and 20 movies to completely reinvent themselves and say, look, we're, we're just going to wipe the slate clean and start over with James Bond. I think that was a great idea. And they did it in a really smooth way, which was to still bring back a lot of the elements of Bond, but give them new context. Um, this Bond that we have after 40 years, boy, you'd think that after 20 movies, that that would be a character and a style and a formula and a world that is just locked in and rock solid. But you feel like they just don't know what they're doing with this one. That They just really don't have any idea what the direction is. I think, you know, um, I think you're absolutely right. I, I honestly feel like the direction of this Bond movie feels off in general with the director. I don't think they chose somebody who truly... Uh, not that he's a bad director, uh, Lee Tomahare, but mm. I don't think he had the the necessity. What is necessary to bring Bond to life in the twenty, you know, tw at the end of the twentieth century into the twenty first century? Like uh, here, the very early twenty first century, it, it needed something different, but it also needed to not go the direction that they did, which is basically. They turned this into almost like a bad Fast and Furious film uh, instead of what Bond had always been, which is something that, yes, outrageous things happened in Bond, but all the stunts and everything were real. Yeah. You know, you weren't playing with CGI and all that stuff. And so that's a big part of the direction, th th them not understanding where to go with this. And, it, and what was fascinating, watching the extras, you know, Barbara Broccoli even said... She said something that we learned from Cubby, which is he always told us, don't screw it up. <laughs> and it's fascinating to me because I do feel like this is the film where they truly screw it up. And they actually screw themselves in a way that almost makes Bond never come back, really. I mean, it just yeah. that that's that's the level to which this movie kind of, uh, I think, is such a mishit with the fans. Now... I was looking like the reception for this movie wasn't all that bad, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I think the way that it's aged, um, it, 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 it quickly, it seems to me to sour with the, 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 the fans of the franchise and then just even just general people, um, out there who are kind of fans of bond. This is one where they're just like, Oh yeah, that one. I mean, it's kind of like I, I'll be honest with you, you know, before Batman we even and get, Robin of the series. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Before we even, you know, get to the end of our discussion today, I, I'll just preface it by saying that this is the only Bond movie that uh, particularly in the theatrical runs. Uh, but ever since I was introduced to Bond, this is the first Bond movie that I only saw once at the time of its release. And then I only watched it in its entirety again for this podcast. That is a rarity for me because I, I'd say of the Bond films that I love, I've seen those at least 
20 times. And of the Bond movies that I have maybe a passing familiarity with, I'd say at least five, six, seven times on those. Um, this, you mentioned the direction right off the bat, and you can tell that something is wrong there, where uh, it, it just the, the pacing is off. Um, use of that weird kind of fast motion transition stuff doesn't work at all. It feels like you don't know what type of movie you're watching and the, the filmmakers don't know what type of movie they're making. But I'll go back to something even more fundamental. I'm glad that you mentioned that the script was in flux because the writing is terrible. And there's about, there's about 50% of a script here where you have the basic outline, you have some elements that you want to hit, you have some plot points you want to hit, but you need to take that 50% and put it in the hands of a really talented writer. Because I felt like every time there was a joke or a quip, it's some writer patting himself on the back for his clever line and nobody having the smarts to say, that's not funny, <laughs> it will age poorly, and you're embarrassing the actors by making them say this. Um, you know, it was bad enough that we ended with Christmas Comes Once a Year uh, at the end of uh, the last movie. And this, I just felt like they're like, well, we, we pushed the envelope that much and we put in so many bad jokes in there. Let's really go for broke and put in all the bad jokes we can here. Yeah. Well, and, and so this is something that, um, you know, before we get completely into the script, because I do want to really dive into that, you know, this is also a movie that, uh, unfortunately, as they're shooting, they they have a lot of issues. They they don't know if they're actually going to be able to film in Iceland because they don't know if the ice is going to freeze enough for them to be able to do that car chase there. Mm -hmm. uh, and it is by providence alone really that it it freezes enough to allow them to shoot there otherwise they were looking at other places like uh, alaska which was going to cost them an exorbitant amount to go somewhere like that and so they get very blessed in that sense that it finally does um where they're filming in spain which is actually what cuba is supposed to be um it's unseasonably rainy and cold there for most of the shoot uh they almost have to leave Spain to go back to the studio the very next day when they're thinking they might leave it becomes sunny and they get what they need but I mean they it's Brosnan gets hurt yeah has to have surgery on his knee they have to shut down production for a while for the first time ever in a Bond movie so as we're talking through I think the the, the issues that happen here this is kind of a film you know we, we've talked about some of the the bonds where as they're continuing, there uh, is some, you know, fraught production. This one definitely just has a very rocky production. And I think it kind of shows throughout most of the film. But you were mentioning how the script has all of these things that happen in it, you know, with uh, puns and all that stuff. I think, though, we have a very strong start in North Korea um, the film kind of feels like the start of uh, Tomorrow um, Never Dies mm -hmm. kind of beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very serious. Um, and then for the first time ever, we have Bond not get away, being captured and tortured. And I think that this set up what... I mean, at the start here, 
minus the you know the theme song this is a fantastic beginning to a movie for bond because it puts us in a place that we've never been with the character before which is to have him come home and really be almost a disgrace because he hasn't killed himself with the cyanide um he's let himself be captured uh and it puts him in a very bad position and i feel like we do if you find a way to like extend that story um maybe make the whole movie about bond redeeming himself so like he escapes from prison or i i just feel like you could have created an amazing bond experience here 40 years in 20th film and then it just it goes off the rails but before that the start is actually i think very good yeah well and, and all that good stuff that's established there is pretty much forgotten through the rest of the movie you know that, yes, that yes. W- which is really strange the guy's been gone for 14 months and tortured with an inch of his life and like you said he has to redeem himself but, but they just sort of wrap that up very neatly and then you move on with the rest of the plot um the north korea stuff i found pretty fascinating i i have a just a weird fascination with North Korea anyway. <laughs> and um, I, I love watching documentaries about North Korea, just the the odd cultural and social construct that it is. Um, and that did not resonate with me uh, as much when this movie came out in 2002 as it does now. And of course, North Korea has always been in the news when it comes to uh, Korea's relationship with the Western world. But it has been even more so in the last few years. So I found all that stuff to be kind of a, a real-world hook to uh, to get me invested in the story, in addition to just the James Bond element of all of it. Um, but what they do to the character of Bond is pretty fascinating. And we've had to do this in a few Bond movies, where you take Bond out of his element, you put him at odds with him, and then Bond has to go it alone and do his own thing. This has almost become a trope in the Bond films at this point, but the way it's done in this, where he's literally tortured and missing for all these months and written off uh, by MI6, that that is a whole other entry point into this idea of separating Bond from the, the, the structure that is the, the institution around him. Um, so all of that stuff is wonderful. But then, like you said, we just sort of uh, just brush it aside so we can move along with the rest of the movie. I wanted to kind of do this thing where what if, what if we take the same start um, and uh, you have the moment um, up until after the theme song, maybe Maybe we even start with him still being in prison, right? Let's rewrite it a little bit. Let, let's 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 one up the writers, you know. Here now, I want to give them their due. Mm-hmm. They also have been um, on on many of the James Bond scripts. You know, they've been on Skyfall. They've been uh, with. I mean, there um, they have been on Quantum, Casino Royale. Uh, you know, Spectre. They've been a part of all of those scripts. You know, so it's it's not like you know, they. They did in World is Not Enough, too. Um, but, you know, so they've had some hits and misses, obviously, yeah. as as writers. Um, and they haven't always been the main writers, but they were definitely the main writers here. So I, I do think we can lay at their feet most of the problems with this script. Well, well, there's something about, though, as a writer, you know, all I want the writer to do is to craft 
the best idea that they think will work to tell the story. So, you know, look, whether it's Bond or, you know, another fandom that you and I are deeply invested in, Star Trek for me, Star Wars for you, um, just let the storyteller tell the story. What stinks from the beginning of this experience is you can tell that the writers here are trying to sort of outpace the audience. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this? Oh, I bet the audience wants this instead of just sticking to what actually serves the story and what serves the character. So sorry for that little rant there, but that I, I feel like that's sort of the headspace that leads you to a movie like this where it, it's just... Um, it's a sort of second guessing like, oh, well, I, I bet they won't see this coming. Oh, I bet they'll think this is funny instead of being true to what you actually want mm -hmm. to accomplish as a writer. So sorry to interrupt you. But yeah, no, uh, no, as far as great. rewriting and reimagining, here's the thing. They already had some great elements in their back pocket that they didn't use, namely Wylin. They were going to bring mm -hmm. back yeah. Wylin from uh, Tomorrow Never Dies. And I think that would have been great. From the time we see Bond escape from uh, the, the, the MI6, the, the British naval ship, and swim across the harbor and show up in that Hong Kong hotel, which is a great scene because it shows you can take the tuxedo away from Bond, but he's still Bond, <laughs> you know? Um, I would have liked to have spent a lot more time there and almost see Bond realizing that he's been written off by MI6, have to form some new alliances through his old alliance, Wylin, and work in a culture that is very different from his own. I think that would have been a really interesting point of view to take with this movie, or at least a good chunk of this movie. See, I completely agree with you because that was my first thought, is if, if you're going to have the Chinese element at that point, why in the world don't you have him get back in touch with Waylon and then the whole movie is about him and her working together, even though their governments don't want them working together, to figure out what's going on in North Korea because China would be very interested in this as well. Right. China even works with the U.S. these days politically, as we're recording, yeah. um, against North Korea. They're not a fan of North Korea. Yeah. So um, I, I think that would have been really fa and ahead of its time in some ways. Mm -hmm. Fascinating to mm -hmm. see that. Um, and of course, you know, you had the whole thing in, in, in that movie about Hong Kong being, you know, switched over to China, you know. So you have, again, that kind of uh, tension between the British Secret Service agent working with the Chinese Secret Service uh, and I think that would have made such a better film. And then, you know, I, I, I think on top of that, I don't know. I, I think you need to find a way to change this whole DNA replacement stuff. I think that's just too far out there, even for Bond. And um, I don't mind necessarily the space weapon because, yeah. I, you yeah. know, Goldeneye, it, that's not awful. But I think you need to find a way to rewrite some of that. Otherwise, you know, if you shift the focus to him and Wei Lin, and a lot of this takes place more in the Far East, I think that makes for a more interesting story. Yeah. 
than the, where they go. And and if you make that the, the those the plot points, you know, you change the Cuba thing to something else, you know, um, all of that stuff. I think you could find a much more interesting way of uh, working these two characters together. And you you know you don't end up with the problem in this film, which is honestly. This movie is fine, even when you're getting to Cuba, but it's the moment, literally the moment that Halle Berry opens her mouth, that the dialogue in this film goes completely south. Because every single thing that she and Bond say from that point is a pun to each other. Yeah. And I don't know what it is about the writers that the moment that she showed up, everything else that they were doing kind of went out the window and it just became this ridiculous farce of itself. But it is very frustrating because I feel like up until that point, even with Bond in Cuba, he's doing this thing like that he's done before where he's kind of on his own. He's trying to find it out. You know, he's he's talked to this um this tobaccoist there who has a friendship with him, you know, he's gathering up things like that. an old revolver yeah. and like a, like he's finding a way to work himself into getting to this Island and everything. Like all of that stuff I feel like is good, mm-hmm. but it's the moment that this character comes in and she just, it's, she's so campy in the role and the role is written so campy and what it does to the rest of the story just throws it completely out of whack. Well, so that goes back to my my earlier rant, which is that, I, again, it's the writers, instead of saying, who is this character? Why is she here? How do they interact? It's the writers instead saying, oh, we have Halle Berry, and we'll, we'll do this clever play on Ursula Andress walking out of the ocean. But, um, well, let's just have her say a bunch of sassy things. That'll, that'll be her character. And I'm sorry, that's not a character. That's just a, a trait. That's a caricature. Yeah, it's yeah. a caricature, right. Um, so they, they gave such short shrift to, uh, uh, to the, all the hype that was around Halle Berry being in this by just doing a paper-thin character for her to play. Um, it, it's such a waste. And I sat there watching it just sort of cringing every time she was on screen. And, you know, of course, they talked about doing a whole Jinx spinoff um, which just would have been a colossal disaster. <laughs> I, well, I, I take that back. I don't know if it would have been a disaster, but there probably would have been films that I would have hated if they had well, continued out that yes. paper-thin character. And I think you hit on something that when you talked about them wanting to do the homage to Ursula Andress, which is fine, right? Mm-hmm. But do it in a way that feels organic to the rest of the film instead of it feeling like... because. What this movie becomes is death by homage. Yeah. You know, because every time that they do that, it feels forced. You know, we, you see it coming a mile away that he's looking at, you know, the, the binoculars and that she's going to come. And, and what's frustrating is that even the way she comes out of the water is annoying. Like, <laughs> nobody comes out of the water flailing their arms and like, I mean, it's like, Ursula Andress didn't even do that. She just came walking up out of the beach, off the beach, yeah, you know, yeah. out of the water like a normal person. Yeah. So it, it's just it, the whole thing just becomes a farce of itself. And, um, you know, I we end up going to, to the underground, you know, uh, secret lair for, for MI6 that holds all the old stuff. And we see all these old gadgets and everything. And it, it's it's sort of cool, but again, it just becomes more of 
kind of in your face than something that feels natural. It, it's it's more of the thing like, hey, remember this? And nobody yeah. wants that moment in a movie where you're taken out and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember that movie. It was 40 times better than this. Yeah, right. Yeah, so that's uh, that really hits the nail on the head with, with a lot of that stuff. And, and just speaking of the, the Halle Berry moment, Jinx coming out of the water, think about how much more clever it was to have Daniel Craig in his uh, yes. tiny trunks yep. coming out of the wire. First of all, looking magnificent. And second of all, just that being a believable moment. Like, yeah, he can still be eye candy. And yeah, we can flip this trope on its head of having the beautiful person emerging from the water. Um, but, but there was something sort of more real and raw and believable, even if in the back of your head you go, oh, look, they've, they've flipped the roles here. That's fine. In this movie, every single thing that they try to do to be clever just comes across mm -hmm. as a joke. Um, we had a discussion a few weeks ago on Mission Log Live about uh, fan service versus an homage versus uh, uh, something that is keeping you in the universe of of that story. And uh, and our caller, hey Barry, uh, our caller was uh, he, he made a good point. He he was talking about the things that you know keep him invested in it, that keep him in that universe. And Ken and I were saying, okay, well, you look at a movie like uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, and there's some offhand reference to, oh, we still have that shuttle from the mud incident. And he and I just both cringed at that because it, it was hammering the audience over the head, even though it was a, just a single line, but it felt out of place uh, it, that we just both hated, hated, hated that moment. It's the equivalent of somebody walking down the hall in a James Bond movie and saying, hey, remember that time with the guy who had all the gold? And they're just moving on, you know, for no good reason. It, it, it's it purely takes you out of that movie. Now, the point that I was making in that show about moments that do work for me, um, I, I said in For Your Eyes Only, the opening of that with Roger Moore's Bond visiting the grave of Tracy Bond. Right. Even though that scene goes off the rails because it turns in this kind of comedic opening, that moment by itself of Bond going to the grave site it's not like we're trying to create this complex continuity. It's not like we're trying to make everything fit neatly into this little box. But what we are saying is that there are moments that inform the biography of the overall character James Bond that still have a place, however it is that we interpret Bond. So something like that, I think, is, is smart. It's handled well, uh, and it makes sense in context in a movie like this in die another day little things i appreciated bond swimming under the uh the, the the ice shelf in order to get up into the hot spring and he's got the little rebreather in his mouth that was from thunderball great it's a piece of equipment bond already had it's a piece of equipment we've established in a movie he uses it we don't make a big deal of it it works we carry on Stopping in Q's lab and just seeing everything piled up around him, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. Um, 
so they they layered it on entirely too thick and and every time it got thick it just pulled me out of the experience it's funny i was thinking of the moment in honor majesty secret service where where bond is waiting yeah. you know in yeah. his office and he just starts rummaging around and finding the different things from the different missions right and in some ways, that seems so much more natural. Just a guy sitting around his desk. He's not at the office very much. And so he just yeah. starts rummaging around and seeing what he's got in there. And it's all this stuff that he's just thrown in there. And he's kind of forgotten that it's there. Yeah. So it is a moment that feels even, it feels slightly more organic than yeah. this. You the, know, the only thing I would change is... about that scene is not playing the soundtracks for yes, those individual yes. items. Mm-hmm. But yes, yes, but yeah, it's just yes. stuff that's in a drawer he carries on. Mm-hmm. Well, and two, because it's he's packing up because he said he quit. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, okay, what do I take with me? What do I not take with me? So, yeah, this, uh, it is it is just a, f- a frustration here. And, and I think, you know, they take a strong start and they ruin it by trying to, I think their idea that they want this one to be massive gets in the way of them finding the story. And doing what's best for the story instead of, okay, how can we one-up ourselves? How can we do something bigger and better? Because, you know, not every James Bond movie has to be bigger and better than the next. Right. Um, you know, it in, in the sense of, like, we have to have bigger stunts and all that kind of stuff. That really gets them in trouble in this movie. And I think part of that, too, goes along with the villain that we have. Um, you know, Toby Stevens is fine as Gustav Graves playing the alter ego of colonel moon but the way that we get there with the dna replacement i mean judy dench's ekman says um i heard rumors of that but i didn't think it existed well that's because it's so dumb i can't (laughs) believe anybody made it up unless you're in like a star trek science fiction show like that makes something i mean um what is that guy on deep space nine who has the 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 region the Uh, the regeneration No, no, he had. Uh, it's a character who has um, the molecular regeneration center. It keeps his molecules like entertained, so he'll live longer. Oh, nice, it's like, nice. Yeah, well, it just feels like yet. something this <laughs> this ridiculous, where you're just DNA replacement therapy. This is like, the dumbest. Seriously, thing. it is truly the dumbest thing, and it's BS. Um, if you replace your DNA, you die. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, that's just not a thing. You know, we, we had in the opening of Diamonds of Forever uh, the idea that uh, uh, Blofeld was doing plastic surgery on others to uh, to create duplicates. And uh, great, do that. That's wonderful. Do all that stuff. Uh, plastic surgery is a thing that works. Um, but this, and, and keep in mind here the timeline 14 months plus a little. Okay. So 14 months is the time that Bond was in that prison, uh, and presumably starting on the day that Colonel Moon was lost and presumed dead. So 14 months plus some for the, the, the action of the time of the movie. And Gustav Graves just sort of emerges out of nowhere and has a ton of money and a ton of diamonds, and he's a celebrity. And nobody did a background check. <laughs> to say, wait, who is this guy? And the DNA... I mean, you know, because friends with the queen, they don't need Brad Right, checks. right, right. Yeah. And the DNA therapy just sort of works that fast. And I... Yeah. That, he's a really fast healer, John. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> he's, he's an X-Man. He's one of the Apparently, X-Men. Apparently, yeah. he is Wolverine. <laughs> he is, he is. Yeah, that, that's... There were 
probably a hundred other ways to to circle back around to the idea of him having survived the fall and reemerged somewhere else and, right. and plotting his scheme. Well, and see, what makes so much more sense is just have Gustav Graves be the front man. Mm-hmm. Sure. Why not? And have Colonel yeah. Moon behind him. Yeah. So that then you have the reveal, like at the end with the plane, you know, where he's in front of his father. And it's it's not this, oh, you don't recognize me because I'm white now. Mm-hmm. It's that... Uh, yeah, you don't. Re- you didn't recognize it was all of my plans here using this guy. You know, like do that. It's just so much easier. You mm-hmm, know, um, mm-hmm. and then, and then you can create that mystery throughout the entire movie of like, who is this Gustav Graves guy, and why is he a big deal? Like, uh, and and Bond is having those problems figuring that out, and it's just Colonel Moon behind everything propping this guy up to be the real guy. Um, and so I just, you, you go so, and I think that's the problem with this movie is that they, they get so far out there that they lose any sense of cohesion with the real world. And that's a problem when Bond, something in it feels so out of left field and so fake Mm -hmm. and couldn't possibly happen that we lose our connection to the character because Bond is best when he is more grounded and and i think if you were to look at all the reviews that we've done pretty much all of the films that we've enjoyed the most are the ones where it's it's really a much more grounded story and bond is a character whose feet is planted firmly on the ground uh in that way and this takes that so far out of the realm of possibility into science fiction it becomes Moonraker-ish, where you're just like, oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, you you have to push things far enough. You have to push things far enough to create tension and surprise and make it bigger than life. But once you've gone that step too far, there's no coming back from it. And it's no slight against Pierce Brosnan, the same way I said the thing about Roger Moore. He's doing everything he can to hold this together. But the odds are stacked against you when when you have as much nonsense as this movie has. Um, by the way, speaking of sci-fi elements and and vehicles and stuff like that, that airplane is really cool. Uh, that is a, an Anatov one twenty four, and that I, I had to look that up because. Again, going back to my weird fascination with North Korea and that they still fly these like Soviet era uh, airplanes. I I just think it's a cool, weird design. And I love that being kind of a central set piece of the movie. I hate the terrible CGI around it, but I loved the airplane in the movie. It's it is frustrating that. Um, the the villain in this one because I, I think again as we're talking about at the beginning with the strong start and the fact that the North Korea stuff is so strong as an idea um, you know we really haven't done North Korea before and it is something I mean they were they were right in pulling out okay what what could be some of the next threats you know North Korea being that threat and choosing them and uh, and choosing this action of you know the idea of a of a crazy person in North Korea wanting to find a way to destroy the demilitarized zone so that they can take over South Korea and all those kind of things happening again, such a thoughtful, perfect idea to start with. But where we go, it takes you so out of 
far out of the realm of possibility. There are always possibilities, Spock said, but this is not one of them. <laughs> no. Um so and and you know, we talked with the, the Bond women about Halle Berry's Jinx character, and I want to talk a little bit more about that and and because I think again, it's not that the 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 character itself, what they want the character to do is bad. The idea that she's an NSA agent, the fact that she's working um, on the same storyline as Bond, basically, there's coming at it from different places, mm-hmm. you know, is basically Tomorrow Never Dies Yeah, with Wei Lin and Bond. Wei Lin is just a well-written character. Unfortunately, Halle Berry's character, I don't know if it's just, it is, I don't know if it's completely all that she's just not well-written. It's just also not well-acted. No. You know, you can take those lines and maybe make them better, but every delivery there is just, it hurts my heart. Well, that's the thing. You you kind of have to ask yourself, okay, if you're an actor and you get this script and you see how thin it is and and there's really not a character there and you read ahead several pages and you go, okay, well, so there's a car chase inside an ice palace and then... uh, uh, you know, uh, being saved with a ring that breaks the glass and blah, blah, blah. Okay, I have all these silly lines and puns. How am I supposed to act this other than just being over-the-top campy? And if you're not getting in a direction to do otherwise, then I guess that's sort of what you're left with. But if you don't have that vision from the top saying, here's the movie that we're making and here's how you behave in this world, then it feels like a disjointed mess, as does this. Um, I have seen Halle Berry in things where I thought she was very good. I have not seen, oh, like uh, Halle Berry's Catwoman. <laughs> but I can't imagine that that uh, uh, that's another bad movie where you sit back and go, oh, wow, well, this is a bad movie, but she's really great in this. I, I can't imagine that that would be the case there. So um, it, it just seems like a, a mismatch from the beginning, a mismatch of the actor with the role, with the uh, the writing, and with the directing. The the frustrating thing is I don't think that she has the chemistry with Pierce. No, no. You know, there's nothing there. When they're going back and forth with those lines, uh, you know, again, Pierce's delivery, I think he's making the most out of those lines that he can, and he's doing something with them that feel... I mean, he, he feels... Um, he feels bondish in it, you mm-hmm. know. He 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 feels a little bit more realistic, whereas she's the delivery that she is giving there is just so kind of over the top, and um, it's a delivery that doesn't seem to have any weight behind it. It's yeah. uh, I don't know. There's just something that's not working there. You flip that though, because Rosamund Pike, this is one of her first major roles in a film as Miranda Frost. And I think she's phenomenal in the role for what she's given to do. And she makes the most of every scene that she's in. And I think she relishes every every part of especially getting to turn and be, you know, um, the the bad, uh, you know, double agent and everything like uh, it's just much, much more exciting. It's much more enjoyable to watch. And, and then watching her bounce her frosty nature bouncing off of you know pierce's bond to me works like that whole scene where they have uh in the ice castle and stuff where he's she's pretending to 
to do what she should do as a, a MI6 agent and mm-hmm. everything and sleeping with him. And, you know, they're both kind of using each other at that moment, which is kind of nice uh, because it, it's mutual and all that kind of stuff. And, and then she's going to go off and do her thing, which is betray them all. Yeah. Um, you know, it, again, it, it just feels so much more realistic yeah so i guess <laughs> yeah in an unrealistic situation yeah she's terrific she's really good she I mean, and no pun intended but she has that icy hitchcock thing that yes, really yes, plays yes. well and it's really uh appropriate for the movie and appropriate for her uh her relationship with bond in this it, it all works really nicely would have been much more interesting to see more of her in this than of jeans no question about it yeah What's great is, too, I mean, you mentioned uh, Hitchcock. She has such a Grace Kelly mm-hmm. presence. Yep. You know, she has that kind of beauty. Um, it's it's off-putting how beautiful she is and everything, and she uses it to her best advantage, you know, and I really appreciate that. And I, I absolutely agree. I, I'm w- imagining somebody like her with, you know, uh, the character of Wei Lin so much more interesting to watch those two go back and forth yes. because much more serious yes. roles. Uh, I think it would have been fantastic. So, um, and I would have cared then when at least Wei Lin was in danger, <laughs> right? As when Jinx is in danger. So, yeah, because with Jinx, you know, it's just going to be another one-liner, another sassy comeback. Mm-hmm. And and look, I I, I get it that. Part of the Bond mystique is that he's got the piffy comeback and the one-liner, but even then, a little bit goes a long way. And typically in the Bond movies, they've known when not to overdo that. Um, So it it really hurts when every other line is that. And and look, not to just pile on about the, the jinx problem in this movie, but even from the moment that they meet... And they they hook up that night, and you're supposed to believe this passionate, hot scene between them. I didn't buy it at all. I, it's I, I, awful. This is like why it's awful. How did we get to this? <laughs> you know, it, it it made much more sense when you had the the Bond and Miranda Frost scene in the ice castle because there are stakes for each of them in this, and. It, it worked. It, again, it worked to serve the story and it worked to serve the characters. Well, and, and, and not only that, but I just I want to say they they tried to make the scene sexy mm-hmm. and it, it it's laughable. There's nothing <laughs> yeah. sexy about it. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, you know, we, we I didn't put this one, uh, but Madonna. You yeah. know, uh, oh, I can't. I can't. I, it just, it, you know, she won a Razzie. I think that says it all. Uh, it, it really does. It, it's just, you know, how every now and then on Mystery Science Theater, the, they'll, if it's an actor in whatever bad movie they're watching, who kind of resembles another actor, and it'll just stop. Uh, and they go, ladies and gentlemen, and then they'll just name whatever celebrity that kind of looks like. And in this movie, in Die Another Day, it just feels like you stop the movie and go, ladies and gentlemen, Madonna. And it doesn't work in the least. Now, that said, the fight between Bond and Gustav Graves is played very well. There are a lot of good moments in that fight. Um, but you did need to get there by way of Madonna. Well, and I think that, yeah, let's have Madonna segue into over-the-top action. But mm-hmm. um, let's start with something I think that absolutely works as an action sequence in this film, 
which is the sword fight, which is yeah. an, a great on screen. I mean, it reminds you of all of the, you know, Earl Flynn type of sword fights. But this one has a, 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 a I don't want to say viscosity to it, but it has a real visceral nature yeah. to it because it's, 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 these two guys are kind of trying to kill each other yeah. in the fight and you could tell and it feels real. And the fact that they, you can tell they're getting tired doing it. Um, it just, there's a, there's a real sense of stake mm-hmm. uh, and stakes to this fight that I think makes it one of the best things about the film is this one scene as they're going around this club, tearing it to pieces. <laughs> and and I, I, I love it. Like, it is actually a scene in the movie that I would go back just to watch this one scene yeah. and maybe on YouTube and then forget the rest of the movie because this is good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, agreed. It, it, it's really well played. You believe the actors in it. You, you believe the danger that they're in. Um, because so often in a Bond movie, you know, it's people at a distance with guns. There's something more intimate about a couple of people with swords right on top of each other and slicing into each other. So, uh, yeah, it, it, that was super well played. The beginning too, you know, the movie, they are trying to do something new for a Bond film and they, they, they do the surfing scene, um, where they, and, and what's fascinating about this is that, Watching the extras, I didn't realize that these are actual surfers doing these massive waves. They're like 25-foot waves, but the way that it's shot doesn't make it feel real at all. And and I don't know if that's just because we're not used to seeing people on 25-foot waves. But, I mean, these are some of the world's best surfers actually doing this. And it just... The, I feel like the cinematography of it just is, to a point, it makes it feel fake instead of real. And that's disappointing. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, it gets kind of mired in the the good and bad scenes of this movie. Because mm-hmm. you, you've got what would be a really good scene like that, where you open in that classic Bond tradition with a very intense stunt that you know somebody actually had to do. So, yeah, it's not Roger Moore going over that cliff, but there is actually a guy going over that cliff with that parachute on his back, you know? So that that's sort of the excitement of watching a scene like that. Or, or you know, it's not Pierce Brosnan jumping off the dam, but there actually is a stuntman who had to do that jump off the dam. So you open with a scene like this, and because it is so dark and it is so murky, you're kind of like, well, I, I can't really tell, but I assume this is real people doing this real stunt and something that is kind of treacherous. By the time you get to the end of the movie and you've seen so much garbage when it comes to the stunts and CG, it just sort of goes out the window. You're just like, oh, well, now it's irrelevant if that scene was real or not. Now it's irrelevant if those were real surfers or not, because yeah. it was sort of cheapened by every other bad shot yeah. in the movie. Well, I mean, it, it's sad because, I mean, you get Laird Hamilton to do this, who's mm-hmm. one of the world's best surfers. And it, it just, yeah, like you said, I, I feel like the movie successively dumbs down how cool that scene could have been. And um, it's disappointing uh, because yeah. I, I feel like, and I had a I had an argument with uh, some friends about this because I actually enjoy the action sequence in North Korea when he's escaping with the hovercrafts. Mm-hmm. They did not. Oh, okay. um, they felt like it was, it just 
it was kind of boring and blasé, but I mm. enjoyed the freneticness of it. I thought it was well done. I felt like it was kind of an interesting idea, this whole idea of hovercrafts floating over the minefield. That was kind of a smart thing. Yeah. Um, it, it also did feel very classic Bond in, in a lot of ways, but I felt like in a good way. Um, we had never had a chase scene like this with hovercrafts, uh, and they actually used hovercrafts they didn't modify them in any way so it gave it the reality of what would happen in a hovercraft chase so all of that i thought was you know if we're talking again the beginning of the movie is very strong when you start off with this kind of action sequence and especially since it ends with you know bond being captured yeah i I really like the hovercraft as well and uh, part of what i liked about it is that and i assume this is the case it feels like those are vehicles that are not as easy to control as, say, yes, you yes. Know, a conventional car or boat or something like that. So you, you sort of feel that in the moment with them sliding around and, and you don't quite know where they're going to hit, quite know where they're going to land. Um, and to your point as well, we've not seen that in a Bond film before. So why not use a, a cool new vehicle? I, I thought that was... Uh, uh, a pretty effective scene. I would take that any day of the week over a Q-boat going through successive buildings in London where that just got tedious and tiresome to see that over and over mm-hmm. and over again. Um, but speaking of new vehicles and new and exciting ways to have chases, the uh, the little stealth planes that Bond and Jinx uh, take into North Korean airspace Again, interesting idea, but I felt like the way it was shot, again, it just felt like so much cheap, weightless CG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And those are real things, too. Interesting. Okay, see, I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, but it, yeah, I was reading that those are um, those are actually real, uh, they're called pro- programmable high-altitude single-soldier transport. Wow. Uh, wow. And it's the, so the switchblade that they're on is, is designed off a working model Mm. um called a fast uh and so uh yeah i thought it was interesting to find out that that's real but again i think you're right the the way the cinematography is done in this film and i think the way the director is is doing the action it's just it's not coming off in a way that feels realistic whereas again going back to the beginning of the film i felt like the action with the hovercrafts and everything feels more realistic yeah yeah although i will mention there are those insert shots that of Brosnan and the CGI work is not great. So you can get pulled out of certain moments where you realize, oh, that's the insert shot. Oh, that's the Mm -hmm. insert shot. And it keeps happening. And I will, that's the thing I'll ding that for. It's just, again, the effects work in this film isn't as strong as it needs to be to keep you from being pulled out uh, of the film and keep you invested. Because, you know, I don't know about you, but I didn't know that they were going to be, uh, inspired by billy joel's running on ice uh but we were gonna have cars on ice so um and it would have been fine i guess and it's not a bad idea to do this scene because again they are doing this for real Mm -hmm. i just i'm not invested in it there's just something about it that's not pulling me in it's not captivating me And, and maybe that's because at this point we're also in invisible cars too we've already had so much bad cgi that i just i think it what it, this is it boils down to by that point in the movie when i was rewatching this mm-hmm. i was playing on my phone because yeah. i was bored 
<laughs> I'm going to be honest. I was just yeah. playing on my phone because yeah. I was bored in the film and I'd kind of look up at the action and be like, uh, yeah, you know, it, it was not exciting. Yeah, so. because it plays like a video game. Oh, this car's got two it, rockets. Yes, now does. this car's yeah. got six rockets. Now this car's got a machine gun. Now this car's got two machine guns. It, just over and over. And the choreography of it felt, well, it felt very choreographed rather than something that has an immediate danger to it. And, you know, Bond has had some great car chases. Bond has had some not so great car chases. This one just felt, for for everything that they tried to do to make it feel real, this one just felt fake. It felt like it was planned on a computer, even if it wasn't actually entirely generated in a computer. You know, I would say, yeah. you, you know, comparing Pierce Brosnan's greatest moments, there was more tension and more fun just in the opening of GoldenEye, where he's racing around those uh, uh, mountain roads and uh, doing the little chase there than any of the stuff with guns blazing in this one. Um, similar to the stuff jumping out of the plane, you know, it was a much more thrilling uh, scene when Bond was doing the halo jump in Tomorrow Never Dies than flying out of the back of uh, an airplane on the little uh, stealth sled. Mm -hmm. Then you get to the end of the movie. It's the, the I mean, the world's most horrendous CGI job with mm. Bond escaping on the... I don't know what that is, um, but it's it's just, it is absolutely awful. And then you have the awful CGI with the plane. Yeah. So you're yeah. not invested on what's happening in um, the, the action in the plane, which is not, there aren't bad fights. You know, yeah. the, the fight yeah. that Jinx is having with Miranda Frost is actually pretty good. Um, of course, there, then there's the awful quip at the end of it mm -hmm. so it ruins it so yeah I, it just the movie does such a a great job of uninvesting you yeah. from the moment that Halle Berry shows up to the point that you get here that by the time it ends you're like thank god this is over yeah yeah that weird paragliding surfing thing uh after uh we've watched the Icarus device against Bond that that's just one of the all-time worst scenes in a Bond movie, no matter what. And they should have seen that coming, and they should have thought better of it, uh, because it's awful. Again, with a good writer, there are a hundred other ways to get Bond out of that. Um, but they chose the worst way to do it. And by the way, you know, for that matter, this movie does a lot of uh, what the Bond movies get pinged for by critics, which is that the technology behaves exactly the way you need it to behave in the scene so here you have this icarus device which is a fearsome weapon that can just destroy anything in its path and yet it's slowly following along right. with this uh <laughs> the, the sort of jet car that bond has stolen long enough for bond to go over the edge of this cliff hang on try to get out of the jet car fashion together this parachute surfboard thing that he's going to use that Icarus weapon still just slowly gliding along where any other time it's just like you hit a button turn it on boom you're toast you're fried same thing with the lasers in the um 
uh, in the sort of supposed diamond uh, mine, diamond processing center that mm -hmm. Gustav Graves has. So you have the slow-moving uh, laser which will decapitate jinx. But then when Bond comes in their room and the wrong buttons are pushed, those lasers just going everywhere. They're just and all And nobody's over. getting hit and with And nobody's them, so. getting hit. Well, a little bit. A little bit. But but nothing yeah. too bad is happening. It's like it, it cuts the outer layer of their clothes, you know. Mm, uh, bummer. So, yeah, the, the technology was a little uh, a little annoying in this. Well, uh, it reminds me of an Austin Powers where the guy is standing in front of the steamroller. Yeah. It's moving right, at like right. three inches an hour. He's yeah. like, no! <laughs> it is the exact same scene, basically. Yeah. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Um, well, it is Dr. Evil saying, you know, after he's captured uh, Austin and Vanessa, start the unnecessarily slow dipping mechanism. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Oh, I just want some freaking sharks and freaking laser beams. That would be more realistic than a lot of the things that happen in this movie. Right, right. And it's it is unfortunate because again, I feel like the movie sets itself up. I mean, even look, even though the surfing isn't great at the beginning, we I feel like we come into a good action sequence mm -hmm. with everything that happens in North Korea. We uh theme song and then we get to the the sequence where Bond escapes to the hotel. All of that stuff is good. You get to Cuba, even there it's good, and then it just all falls apart. Mm -hmm. And it, it it's frustrating because it feels like the whole time they're trying to do things that maybe you've never seen in a Bond movie, but they're not sticking to the formula, which is we have to be able to do this for real or we don't do it. Yeah. Well, it, and it's that's kind the of, frustration. It, it's the problem with a lot of movies that pass themselves off as parody. So I, I always say, you know, movies like Airplane are so successful because you can tell right from the start that there's a deep love and understanding of the source material. They get all the things that are wonderful and terrible about the movies that they're poking fun at. But then there are movies that pass themselves off as a parody that aren't parodies. All they're doing is just essentially lifting a moment and putting it in front of the audience and saying, hey, remember this? Hey, remember this? Hey, this other thing happened in this other movie. And that's the problem with Die Another Day. It, it's Yeah, they didn't set out to make a parody, of course, but it's coming from the same place where instead of you feeling like the people who wrote this and and produced it and created it, crafted it, are coming from a, a deep understanding and love of the source material. It's like instead they just sat down, they were shown the 19 previous movies and said, okay, now go make one. And, and not really getting anything about the heart or the context of any of this stuff at all. So instead of a Bond movie being the fun and adventure of following this guy and again stretching the bounds of of our disbelief for a little while, it's just, uh, oh, well, this other movie had a car. Now we need to have a car that has one more machine gun on it and it's also invisible. And and I'm sorry, but that that's not a movie. It's a gimmick in search of a movie. 
And they picked the wrong movie. Well, and it is too bad because the Vanquish is a beautiful vehicle. Oh, yeah. From Aston oh, Martin. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the way it's treated here is just with such disrespect, yeah. you know, in the Agreed. sense of, oh, let's make it invisible. And mm-hmm. like, you're like, you don't even see the car half the time. How dumb is that? Right. The whole point is how cool the car is. Right. So, uh, yeah, I, I heartily agree with you. I think you've really pinpointed the, the issue here is that I know what they want to do, that they want to honor all that's come before, and they want to find a way to encapsulate all that together. But I think all the worst tendencies of trying to pay homage to something are seen in this one film. I think this is a hallmark film in the sense of this is how you don't do an homage. Yeah. And what we see in something like Skyfall or even Casino Royale, honestly, any of the Craig movies where they pay homage to something, I think it's done much better. And they just don't have that here. And it's frustrating. And I I think one of the places, too, the moment the theme song plays, we've referenced it a couple of times, Mm. the moment the theme song starts... It doesn't fit the 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 theme of what's happening to Bond whatsoever. You need like almost more of a morose type of of theme song to be playing with the torture that's going on with Bond than this awful techno Madonna thing. I mean, it is an abomination of a song, if you ask me. It's just so god-awful. I would listen to any other theme song from any other Bond movie before this one. It's that bad. Yeah, agreed. It, it, it's And here's the thing. The, the score is not bad. There are a no, lot the of, score is actually really good in this movie. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of good moments on that soundtrack. And and I was pleasantly surprised going back and rewatching this. Go, oh, wait. Okay, that music actually really works. But I don't think I ever listened to the soundtrack on its own because of just the the fear of accidentally loading up that Madonna track. Um, it's it's truly <laughs> that bad. It 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 does it doesn't even make sense as a Madonna song, you know. Yeah, it, again, it, it's whoever's in charge just saying like, hmm. Well, Bond films have to have a great opening song. Uh, who who does my uh, my daughter or my son say is big? Madonna? Okay, sure. Get Madonna. Whatever. Just uh, just let her do something. It's funny. I was thinking, yeah, you know Michael Bublé's Cry Me a River? Yeah. yeah. If you were to put that over the actual scenes that are happening, at, uh, the, the, the opening credits. Yeah, yeah. Put that song in there; it would work so much better with the that the the booming at the beginning, you know, and the way that he sings the song and yeah. "Cry Me a River" as Bond's being drowned in cold water and everything, and, right. and you know that kind of theme. So that's what I'm talking about. You need that kind of theme, um, something that feels classic and yet is kind of almost referencing what's happening in a way that feels to match. I mean, the, this upbeat techno madonna thing doesn't fit what's going on with the the scenes of torture i don't feel any of that torture because i i'm in a whole i'm in a you know nightclub yeah well and and her voice is processed within an inch of its life so you you can't even well, get yeah. a sense of what the so cl- classic madonna is what you're yeah, saying right well <laughs> classic madonna i would take certainly over this it, it it's just um it's a mess and it doesn't do her any favors. And even the opening credits stuff, um, 
there have been great opening credits. There have been terrible opening credits. I, I would put this pretty firmly among the bottom of the list. You know, when those opening credit sequences are great, they can accomplish different things. A, a lot of times they fall back on this sort of sexy versus dangerous uh, uh, yin and yang for the Bond films. And, and you get that in the, the music video that is the opening credit sequence. A lot of those are very effective. Um, a movie like Skyfall, they cleverly tell the entire story in pictograms, essentially, through that opening theme. So that's great to go back and watch that one after you've watched the movie. This one just was sort of very off-putting. You know, I, I, I know that it needs to accomplish telling you what's been going on with Bond because it's this long period and we're catching up with Bond after months and months and months of this torture. But the other stuff going on in there, it was just very off-putting and it's not an opening credits that I would ever go back and watch again just like I would never go back and listen to that song again. You know, I, I just, uh, I, I feel like uh, there is a quote that fits here um, from our friend Madonna, and it's, life is a mystery. <laughs> uh, everyone must stand alone. And if you like this theme song, I think you do stand alone. So, um, it, it's funny because uh, before we started recording, um, I was just kind of listening to some of the soundtrack. And I have to say, uh, the, the actual score here by uh, David Arnold again. He really ha he's found a way to create Bond themes, and and I specifically love the track "Welcome to Cuba" mm. because mm -hmm. it's such a great mix of like uh, Cuban beat with the James Bond theme and everything. It's 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 vibrant. It it fits that scene perfectly as Bond's driving around in that classic car, you know, and what's supposed to be Cuba. It's great. It's really great. Yeah. You know, uh, David Arnold, I think, nails it out of the park. I think you're right. It's it's a score that I don't listen to much because I don't want to accidentally get that <laughs> clip of Madonna singing the theme song. But the actual work that David Arnold did, you know, um, it, it stands up with all the other work that he's done so far. So it is yeah. actually it is one of the highlights of the film is actually the score. Yeah, for real. Well, um. This will be very interesting because I don't know if we've ever gotten to the end of rating a Bond film where the question is, how low can you go? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I said it earlier in the show, which is that there were things that I found myself interested in this time around more so than the first time I saw this movie. The only other time I watched this movie in its entirety, which was in 2002 when it came out. And I just remember being very excited about the 20th movie, the 40th anniversary. There was so much excitement and hype around that. And I was so disappointed coming out of the theater after seeing it. Um, that said... You know, the, the elements that I pointed out that I liked, um, that that opening sequence, uh, the stuff in Hong Kong, uh, as you point out, the stuff in Cuba, um, the soundtrack is very good, uh, except for the opening theme. Rosamund Pike is great. I think Gustav Graves could be one of the better villains 
had they not convoluted this whole origin story for him that is unnecessary. Um, we didn't talk about Zhao. Zhao could have been interesting, but they... Was there anything to really talk about other than the fact that he's got diamonds in his face? He's got diamonds in his face. In his face. I mean, That's the thing. He yeah. could have been interesting, but they didn't make him interesting other than having stuff in his face. <laughs> you know? Set pieces were okay. You know, the the sequences in London, I thought, were fine, uh, with the exception of loading up all of Q's gadgets from every movie into one room. That made no sense. Um, the, the airplane set piece, very interesting. Uh, all the sequences in North Korea, very interesting. Um, I even read that they washed out the color from that just to, to sort of give it a unique and very sinister look, which I think they accomplished well in that. Um, there's just so much that misfires here, and it's really too bad. It's not Pierce Brosnan's fault. I think he's been perfectly good as Bond, and it would have been interesting to see him make more movies. But I'm really glad that the producers decided to reboot Bond after this. The time had come after 40 years. Nothing wrong with that. Just going in a bold new direction. Um, I think I'm going to have to give this 2 out of 10 giant Soviet-era airplanes. You know, I, I, I might be convinced to move the needle a little bit to go up to a two and a half or maybe even a three uh, because the good things that are here are actually the core of, of what could have been some truly iconic great moments for Bond. But they fumbled the ball every step of the way. And when they started out with a good idea... They forgot to finish the good idea. When they they had interesting things on paper, you know, uh, be it the relationship between Bond and Jinx, they didn't actually flesh it out into real chemistry that we see on camera. When we're supposed to feel danger, we don't really feel danger because it's just so much CG. So it's it's too bad. It's too bad that Bond sort of goes out with a whimper like this. But I'm I'm really grateful that we got the reboot that we did. Uh, yeah, it is frustrating that the ultimate action hero, the manliest man, you know, <laughs> like goes out so limp. Um it, it's it's shocking how um uninspired this movie is in so many different ways and it's frustrating and i'll put it this way i i didn't know i could be this disappointed in the cinema in 2002 until i saw star trek nemesis (laughs) (laughs) and then that happened Uh and i was like wow two franchises have been killed in one year yeah Uh, because this almost does i think kill the james bond franchise it becomes a laughing stock after the movie's over and people start to really look at it with the invisible cars like you said the uh the no sense of danger because everything is cgi uh the ridiculous punnage that's happening between you know bond and jinx this you can't lay this at the feet of Pierce Brosnan, and mm-hmm. and I feel so bad for him that he does not get to do at least one more Bond film. Yeah, 
to clear his name because to go out like this is a travesty uh, of a proportion we hadn't seen since Roger Moore. Yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately, Brosnan goes out in the same way in a film that's just so undeniably awful that you just don't want to watch it again. Like, I don't ever want to see this movie again. Yeah. I don't need to watch it ever again. And that's a that's a disappointment because I think Brosnan deserved better um, because, he, you know, he was a good Bond, mm-hmm. especially those first two films that he's in. He's good. Yeah. The last two films that he's in just do not serve him as a character or an actor very well. And part of that has to do with them casting awful people for him to play off of. Uh, last movie was Denise Richards. This movie, it's Halle Berry. Um, you'd think an Oscar winner could do something, but yeah. she doesn't. And and we get this. And so, um, yeah, I'm right there with you. I do think that this film is, you know, two out of ten conflict diamonds, <laughs> uh, you know? So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It's 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 frustrating, um, but there are a few things that this movie could have been completely different, and it could have been in a fantastic Bond movie. And Pierce might have gone on to do two or three others if if they had, I think, been able to find a way to take the core of what they had, which is Bond being captured and tortured and finding a way to clear his name throughout the whole movie. If that's really the movie there you have the, such a better movie. Uh, and so they just, they don't do that. And it's, it's disappointing. So um, I am glad that we have the uh, mission impossible franchise coming up as we'll talk through one through four there to, to see how that goes, because that is a franchise I always remember is pretty much always getting better except for two. So we'll see how that goes. Um, and, um, we may, uh, I, you know, uh, Nick Anastasio wanted us to cover never say never again. So, you know, next year I definitely could see that coming, um, as we talk yeah. about that, I think it would be worth it. And who knows when Craig's next film is going to come out, but hopefully soon, because I'm ready we'll be to wash this taste out of my <laughs> mouth. Um, and, ah, oh, yes. McCallan was not enough tonight. So um, <laughs> thank you for joining us here at the 602 Club for the episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed the Bond series that we have done. Um, we have now completed every single James Bond movie, and, and that's exciting. Of course, the aforementioned Never Say Never, again, even though that's not an official Bond movie. So um, thank you so much to our associate producers here, uh, Davis Grayson, Ken Tripp, Daniel Noah, and Ryan Millette. They have all been supporting the network through Patreon and they make sure all the shows keep coming to you each week. And one of the goal, uh, one of the special perks that they decided to have at their contribution level was to be an associate producer here through this show. And so I really appreciate their support. It's meant a lot to me. It keeps the show here, the 602 Club, coming to you each week as well as everything else we do. So make sure you go over to uh, patreon.com slash trekfm, see how you can be part of the team there's no way that this network can happen without listeners like you. So every little bit helps uh, every little bit a month. And again, that's patreon.com slash Trek FM. John, um, we're here at the end of bond and um, yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe you need to go watch Skyfall or something tonight and, and um, 
yeah. feel good about Bond again. Right. Uh, but um, if anybody would like to catch up with you online, talk about Bond, of course, Star Trek or anything else, um, where can they find you, sir? Yeah, best place to find me would be through the Roddenberry Podcast Network, podcast.roddenberry.com. And uh, you can find me from Mission Log. Uh, that would be at Mission Log Pod on Facebook and Twitter. And personally, you can find me at DVD Geeks on Twitter. Uh, so ping me if you want to talk Bond or something non-Trek. And then, uh, and then what the heck, on Instagram, <laughs> find the slow-mo gentleman. Uh, I'll post a, a fun thing there every now and then. Well, I know the slow-mo gentleman voted because yes. he voted slow. <laughs> yes. Um, took yes. his time, made sure it was right. Yeah. So, it, uh, yes. Uh, um, so thank you for doing your silly. civic duty, slow-mo gentleman. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um. <laughs> just silly, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's great stuff. Make sure you are following John and checking out all that he's doing over there at Roddenberry Podcasts. It's, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, MattRushing02. I'm on Instagram under the same name, as well as Letterboxd now. So if you're following films over on Letterboxd, I'm MattRushing02 there as well now. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. I am over on the Nerd Party Network doing a couple of shows. One I do with Drea Kaufman. And that is where we talk about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time on Owlpost. Um, we have just started The Order of the Phoenix, so super excited to be getting into a new book. Check that out. I'm doing aggressive negotiations with John Mill as, as we dive into a new Star Wars topic each and every week. It's a lot of fun. And then last but not least, doing cinema stories with my friend Courtney as we talk about films through the lens of faith. But thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back down here.